Welcome. This is Gary Rogowski. Thanks for joining our podcast for the Northwest Woodworking Studio. Today's podcast is an excerpt from my book called Handmade, Creative Focus in the Age of Distraction. This chapter is called Discipline and Practice. Not everyone wants to practice. Not everyone has the discipline necessary for practice. If you are skilled or want to learn something, it is the only thing that allows you to get better and to develop your skills. Most people do not want to practice. They just want to be good right away. They want to skip the work part and just be great. It takes discipline to become skilled. My father taught me discipline. A Catholic high school education reinforced it. I was taught that if I do a job, do it well. To those two stern teachers, I owe a debt of gratitude. I learned to work hard, and that is the most valuable thing I ever learned at school. It wasn't the biology or the literary symbolism or theories that were critical. It was the discipline that was the most important, forcing myself to work when I didn't feel like it, getting to the bench to get a job done when I wanted to play, learning to focus when I wanted to dream, practicing denial of some pleasures in order to get something back in return. It is a paradox, and the repayment can feel slow in coming. It is there over time if you have the discipline. Discipline is what I use to become skilled. The dominant cultural paradigm that we are sold now of living faster, buying more or bigger or faster is not for me. That's one way to live. There is another, to slow down, to try to do your best work, to make your efforts count. My father taught me many things that made me punish myself for not being good enough, but he also taught me that valuable attitude about doing the job right. There is no shortcut to quality. It takes effort. The hard work is part of the reward. If you dedicate your life to mastering your skill, and it will take that long, if you decide on this journey, then once it is inside of you, nothing but your last breath can take it away from you. To fall in love with your work is the key. It is never work then. Always strive to elevate your craft and to make your work better. It did not come easy learning at the bench, because that sort of discipline requires patience, and patience was never one of my strong suits. Plus, our furniture work is labor-intensive. It can take a week to finish a piece or a month. This need for patience in how I design, how I consider my steps in building, patience in the shaping and preparation of my wood, patience in the application of hardware in my finishes, this is hard to learn. It takes time. I want it now. Slow down. I'm hurrying. I have to remind myself. It is frustrating. It does not come easily. When it does, when my work flows from a place of calm and is not hurried but paced appropriately, what a difference is felt. Maybe I understand a little where this mastery comes from. Some of your discipline can come from external sources. I use deadlines as a motivating tool. Here's the job and here's when it needs to be done. Deadlines help me focus. Your own education is personal. Your desire to improve your skills has no contract to sign off on. This drive has to come from within. I wanted to build better work that was designed with intention and made well. So my discipline, my desire to improve, was based on an idea of where I wanted to be and what I wanted my work to look like. It wasn't much of a carrot, but it motivated me. I had this imperfect notion of what a furniture maker and designer should be building, so I took on jobs that helped me in this. I was the one in charge of what I would create. The only issue was finding people willing to support me in this goal. In other words, clients. Here's a story of one of my pieces. 
I had spent four years underground in my basement shop teaching myself how to build. When I started to build bigger things, I wanted my designs and my work to be better, so to practice my skills, I would build things for the house. I designed and built a coffee table out of red oak because the wood was cheap and we needed a table. This project also gave me the chance to learn about hand chopping my mortises with a chisel, which was something that I felt I needed to try. Now this is slow work and I needed to pay attention to get those walls of the hole, the mortise, clean but also straight in and parallel to one another. I chopped and I sharpened and I sharpened and I chopped my mortises into this red oak. And I cut my tenons with hand tools and my bandsaw. I fit the joints together and made a nice looking table base. Then I glued up boards for the top, cut a groove into the top rails and glued my top into those as I assembled the whole table and then put some finish on it. And there it was. Pretty nice work, I thought. Months later, I looked at this piece and saw something terrible. One of the joints on the top had split open at one end. It had delaminated. This was no good. I couldn't call myself a woodworker if my work was going to crack up. If I was selling this work, I would have to move every few years to keep my reputation on the run. This minor disaster made me consider what had happened. I realized first that wood movement can pull even a glued joint apart. I glued my top into the rails, and they hadn't allowed for the wooden top's movement. Listen to your house throughout the seasons. Listen to these cracks and pops during the evening hours. This is wood movement in your furniture, your cabinetry, maybe the house itself. When my tabletop tried to expand or contract, the table base tried to prevent it from moving. Something had to give. It was my glue joint in the top that popped. I learned how to make better lamination using something called a spring joint, and I learned to pay attention to wood movement from then on. I had to keep my standards high, even if, as a self-taught woodworker, I didn't know what the standards were. I figured that in my field, a reputation lay in the results. I wanted everyone to know that they were getting my best work from me. After a time, though, the issue of economy will come into play. It's tough enough surviving as a craftsman in this world. Why keep up high standards? What's the point of doing work that no one will appreciate, no one will recognize, even if I point it out to them and show them the intricacy of my joinery, the dexterity of my hand to work, the brilliance of my design? Who will care? Someone may say, no one will see this extra work. Why do work that no one will know about? Why put all this extra effort into it? The answer is simply that I will see. I will know. It will be me who knows that I did my best work, imperfect though it usually is. This is not the road to riches or fame, but I have to let go of that desire to be rich. Let go of the desire of fame. Do the work for myself. It takes discipline to do this. I have to recognize that some of the time spent on a piece will never be compensated. The client will never know what I've done. And even another woodworker might not notice the care taken over the smallest detail. Yet over time, my value as a craftsperson will show. I will be compensated over time, both for myself and when others start to notice. If you are the kind of maker that takes care, you will be found. Here's a story of someone taking care. Sonny Rollins, the jazz saxophonist, became dissatisfied with his sound in the early 1960s. He quit doing gigs and practiced instead on the Williamsburg Bridge in New York City for months to perfect his sound. He did this without accolade, without compensation. He did it to get better. Who would know? Sonny Rollins went on that bridge to practice because he knew that he had to be a better player. He knew that this practice would make a difference in his playing and in his life. Hadn't the great Charlie Parker in his youth spent 12 to 15 hours a day practicing in order to get better at the Kansas City Jam challenge sessions he frequented? 
Sonny Rollins had to practice. And now late in his life, he can think back with no regrets and say to himself, I did this. I made this happen. I made the sacrifice, and I did it for me, and it made me who I am this day. There is no price that can be placed on this willingness and on this knowledge, no cash value that can be counted out in your hands for this type of satisfaction. You do this work because you have to do it for yourself. Practice this, and good things will come from it. Twyla Tharp, the modern dancer and choreographer in her book, The Creative Habit, talks about the importance of ritual for an artist. Whatever form, be it an odd form like cleaning your room, a mystical form like lighting incense or unfolding a dollar bill, whatever mundane form it may take, that ritual signals the beginning of the process. And the practice is an important part of the ritual for a woodworker because the work is so labor-intensive, there are so many jobs to perform well. It simply takes time to learn the steps of each to master them. Practice is the key. If you can learn the discipline to practice, one day you will surprise yourself by how much you have learned, how much you have taught yourself. Some years later, I was making library tables for the new State Archive building in the state capitol. It was an important job with a design competition that I had to win in order to get the contract. With this contract came a lot of responsibility because the architects also gave me the design of the cabinetry to be built and installed. Designing for the State Library, I was meticulous in how I wanted the tables to look. I went to other libraries around the state to do research, not in books. I went to look at the library tables themselves. I went to different colleges and universities to see how their tables were holding up over time. What worked best for materials and design? I went to my old college first because the tables there had recently been replaced, and so they looked great. The old ones that were still around were made of oak and were quite stout and solid, gothic in taste. The tables at the local city university were not designed well, nor particularly well made. Form is function is boredom, and they were good to sleep at. The tables I visited at the library at the Mount Angel Abbey, designed by the famous architect Alvar Alto, were veneer over plywood, as were the library counters. These were designed by someone famous, and so they must be done right. Yes? Not so much. They did not fare well, as there were wear spots at their edges, places where elbows and arms had rubbed through or were books rubbing over the surface every hour of every day had worn them out, so much for veneer as a surface material. They were worn and shabby instead of gleaming with age and the polishing of use. I wanted my tables to grow worn and beautiful over time. I decided on several details after my research. The tables would be all solid wood. They would have structural elements that would also be design features that would help to prevent racking and swaying over time. They would be built to last. They would have some details of the architecture of the building in them. I used the curvature of the library walls as a starting point and added that into the shape of the tabletops. I also wanted something in these tables to rest your eye on, a detail that would help your mind wander. I designed a pattern based on a pine cone seed shape and planned to inlay that into the tops and end columns. If I used solid wood for the tabletops, I also had to make sure these joints would hold. This meant cutting spring joints for the laminations, as I could not have these joints fail. Spring joints are a technique for ensuring long-lasting edge laminations. It is a simple concept, but can be difficult to accomplish, especially on long boards like I had. My tables were seven feet long. What I wanted to have was a slight concavity along the edges of each two boards being glued up. A little bit of spring to them where the boards touched at their ends, but in the middle there would be a little space I could just barely see some light through if I held the boards up to look. 
In this way, when I applied my clamping pressure and glued the boards together, there was extra pressure at their ends and all the gaps closed up along the lamination. There were seven or eight boards in each of the ten tabletops I had to make. This made for a lot of spring joints to cut. I had a helper at the time, and his work was adequate, but it was showing too many gaps in the joints. He argued that the joints he was producing were within industry standards. I said to him that I didn't care about the industry. My name was going on these tables, and they had to be right. It was frustrating not to be able to get these edges cut right the first time. We worked on each joint until it was just right. Then the top would be right. It was worth the extra effort. My preferred signature is modest. My initials carved into the bottom of the tabletop sufficed. It's better sleeping weather when I know I've done my best work. You don't make the work. The work makes you, Stephen Bogarts. Thinking by walking. I have no solid evidence. This is merely my hunch, my speculation. I came up with this theory while walking. Simply put, movement is important to thought. The pace of walking is suited to our way of thinking. It is the rate at which we are supposed to be thinking. I believe we evolved as animals who climbed trees, who strode across the prairies, who walked from one camp to another, one fort to another, one city to the next, until we learned to ride on animals, on one another, or on conveyances that were conceived by great and lazy minds on their walks. Read Wendell Berry's An Entrance to the Woods to understand the importance of pace. Our senses, after all, were developed to function at foot speeds, and the transition from foot travel to motor travel in terms of evolutionary time has been abrupt. The faster one goes, the more strain there is on the senses, the more they fail to take in, the more confusion they must tolerate or gloss over and the longer it takes to bring the mind to a stop in the presence of anything. Walking is connected to thinking. This pace is one of meditation. It is the time for us to move ideas around as we move through a multitude of sensory stimuli. It is playtime. It is not considered remunerative, so it is frowned upon. Yet daydreaming is not wasted time. It is enormously powerful if scorned and misunderstood by logicians. Our brain is still mysterious ground for us, even given our accumulation of knowledge. Consider your own dreams if you can remember them from last night. The pace of a walk helps call ideas forward, unlike driving or riding a bicycle. I had a student who used his bicycle as his only form of transportation. In the worst weather, he cycled, even if walking was safer or drier. On ice, in driving rainstorms, he rode his bicycle so he could get there, wherever there was. He wanted to get there faster. That's one way of traveling. I know that something is missed by those cyclists, drivers, and commuters whose minds are set on getting there. Wasted creative time. The meditation that can be walking allows my crowded thoughts to sift their way through my consciousness. They work themselves out in ways that are not logical or sensible. It is a place where synthesis must occur. This is creative right-brained activity and not logical left-brained work. This occurs in a locale where our mood and the colors and smells along the way, the shapes we see, can all contribute to this synthesis and perhaps to an idea of merit. We walk and we dream, and then we put these dreams into action. Walking acts as a curious stimulant to my brain. It opens me to a world of sights and smells and sounds that by its tempo, its rhythm, its curiosity, finds fresh combinations and remembered patterns. I hear melodies or I play a song over and over again in my head. I regain memories or bury them under new ones. Being on a long walk is akin to attending a symphony. A friend of mine once told me, it's okay, listen to the music, and just let your mind go wherever it wants to. 
I use the same method when I walk. I try to have no conclusion to reach when I set out. This is simply an opportunity to let things sift. Like my beagle in his nose used to do, I let my mind take me wherever it may. This right brain activity, then, is very much like dog brain activity. It is not linear. It is synthetic. It is not logical. It is intuitive. It is not temporal. It is always in the moment. Time flies when I'm on to some intriguing idea. Richard Feynman was a Nobel Prize physicist because he allowed his brain to put together regular ideas or facts in new and unusual patterns, not logical thinking, even in a field as reasoned as physics, but holistic, creative thought. When NASA's space shuttle Challenger exploded, it was due to a massive failure in team communication, understanding, and in simple O-ring gaskets. Feynman determined the cause for the failure with a simple synthetic experiment. He showed the Presidential Commission on the Disaster that a low temperature could compromise the integrity of the gaskets by changing their shapes. Freezing temperatures had occurred the night before the launch. The O-rings compressed and failed to seal, which caused gases to escape, blowing up the rocket. Feynman showed this in an embarrassingly simple display. He put one of the O-rings in a glass of ice water with a C-clamp on it. When he removed the clamp, the gasket failed to return to its original shape. This lack of integrity after a freeze-thaw cycle would have allowed the gases to escape, causing the explosion. By thinking out of the box, Feynman reproduced a failure that NASA failed to acknowledge, and many other scientists could not determine. Jill Bolte-Taylor was a neuroanatomist, a scientist who studied brain activity. In her 2008 book, My Stroke of Insight, she talks about synthetic brain activity from her own experience with a stroke. Her inability to use the logical left side of her brain after her stroke allowed her to see how domineering that side was. With her left hemisphere no longer active, her ability to organize things in a linear fashion left her. The detail side of her brain, the descriptor, the narrator, the I am that scheduled her life was shut off. Her stroke allowed her access to the right side of her brain and its nonlinear way of thinking. The shift from a linear process to one of impressions with blurred and blended edges left her with insight into her creative brain. Creativity required that she put the linear aspect of her brain aside long enough to be playful and open to all possibility with no judgment, no need for perfection. With no path to follow, everything had some value then and was worth exploring. She could discover new syntheses, new ideas, and new forms that both sides of her brain could later develop. I need to put myself into a different frame of mind to be able to create. Movement does this for me. Walking sifts ideas, images, and inferences, working through me into action or mood or choice. What I see at this pace is easier to hold on to than when flying in a plane or riding in a car or on a bicycle. Time slows down for me, and I never know what conclusion I may reach or problem I may solve. The very act of walking helps me to process. It doesn't always yield results. It sometimes gives answers in a completely different arena with ideas popping up unbidden. It's illogical yet fruitful, which is why it's so intriguing. In Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Robert Persig wrote about how the French mathematician Poincaré made several important discoveries after walking. Poincaré felt that his subliminal self had helped him to feel his way to a truth by discarding rules, by eliminating unnecessary ideas and letting the solution rise up to consciousness. 
This is the same concept that Persig's character Phaedrus refers to as pre-intellectual awareness. Only the interesting and useful ideas break their way into consciousness. Twyla Tharp writes about how walking stirs the brain. Movement stimulates our brain in ways we don't appreciate. All artists need to stimulate their brain somehow. Action is the tool that uncovers ideas for me and opens my mind to possibilities. Walking, then, works as both meditation and stimulant. Think by walking. Thoughts, ideas, patterns will emerge that seem to come from nowhere but are created in the fine sifting of our experience and senses. Creativity is the residue of time wasted. Albert Einstein. Well, this was a... uh, an excerpt from my book called Handmade, kind of a compressed version of that chapter. I hope you'll read the book. There's another quote in that chapter uh, from my old friend Bogey, who says, uh, you don't make the work, the work makes you. Get to a bench, it's important for you. Thanks very much for listening. This has been Gary Rogowski for the Northwest Woodworking Studio. Check out our website for classes. We've got a whole slew of things coming up this spring and summer. I hope you'll join us. Thanks very much. Take care.